I've got great news for you that you are able to stand firm in this life, no matter how bad it gets. Isn't that good news? And it's true, but I wonder if you understand, if you know how to do it, how to stand firm. Let's face it, life sometimes can be very chaotic, and we uh, sometimes feel very unstable. Uh, Sometimes life is not very chaotic, uh, but we still may sense this underlying uh, insecurity or this underlying instability so if we, if we want to be secure and stable, we must rejoice in God. We are surrounded by things that threaten our joy and make it very hard to rejoice and stand firm. Our joy seems so fragile at times, uh, like, like it's a vase uh, getting, uh, getting shook to the edge of a table and it's, and it's almost ready to go and... Andrew Brunson, he is a a teaching elder in my denomination uh, who pastors a a church of around 40 people in Turkey. Turkey is over 99% Muslim. Uh, There are only about 7,000 Protestant Christians in Turkey. Last month, the Turkish government threw Andrew in jail without any evidence to convict him, and yet they consider him, quote, a member of an armed terrorist organization and a threat to national security. Andrew is incarcerated right now, today, as far as I know, because of Jesus Christ. He can't enjoy his dear wife. He can't enjoy his children. He can't enjoy his his freedom, his home. He can't enjoy his church family. How is Andrew supposed to rejoice in his unwarranted incarceration? Now, Billy Graham is a household name, But how many of you know the name Charles Templeton? How many of you have heard of Charles Templeton? Okay, maybe one person. Charles Templeton was an evangelist with Billy Graham. Templeton co-founded Youth for Christ, which you may have have heard of, and helped get Billy Graham hired as Youth for Christ's uh, first full-time evangelist. And Templeton and Graham became close friends, and they actually toured the world together, putting on these massive Uh, Christian evangelistic crusades. Surprisingly, it was Charles Templeton who became the more outstanding and, and famous preacher of the two. Massive crowds would come to hear Charles Templeton preach. I find this a bit odd, but apparently in 1946, the National Association of Evangelicals listed Charles Templeton among the best used of God. And Graham wasn't even on the list. Templeton was a superstar in Protestant evangelicalism. In 1957, about 21 years after Charles Templeton professed Christ, he declared himself an agnostic. He abandoned the authority of Scripture and the gospel, and he he wrote in his book titled Farewell to God, quote, I believe that there is no supreme being with human attributes, no God in the biblical sense, but that life is a result of timeless evolutionary forces having reached its present transient state over millions of years, end quote. How are you and I going to withstand the pressure to abandon Christ and his church and the pressure to rejoice in something else? Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist, called it child abuse, to teach children creationism and withhold from them the so-called reality of evolution. 
author and neuroscientist Sam Harris tweeted, quote, Christianity and Islam are engines of stupidity and division, end quote. In 2004, the Rational Response Squad, that kind of has an interesting ring to it, were, uh, um, it's actually an atheist activist group, they started something called the Blasphemy Project, where atheists are invited to record messages of themselves, um, videos and submit videos, blaspheming or denying the existence of the Holy Spirit. And some famous people like Penn Gillette, who you might have heard of, and Christopher Hitchens, who has since passed on, participated in this project. How are we to rejoice and stand firm with such determined and offensive opposition? Terminal illness... Abortion, abuse, debt, sexual immorality, divorce, suicide, violence, addictions, godless work environments, endless entertainment. How are Christians to stand firm among the sorrow and temptation of all those things and more? And it's not just in our culture. If you believe the Bible is absolutely true and inspired by God, believe in the virgin birth and the incarnation of God's Son, believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, believe that heaven and hell are real places that real people go to forever, and that marriage is between one man and one woman, you stand in opposition to most Protestant mainline denominations and congregations. Professing Christians will label you divisive, intolerant, arrogant, bigoted, and probably worse, simply because you believe in God's word, simply because you believe what Jesus believed. How does a follower of Jesus Christ rejoice when they face hostility from within the church? These are external threats, but what about the anger, lust, Jealousy, idleness, selfishness, pride, and doubt inside of us. How can we rejoice when we are so broken? Well, a myriad of things, very persistent things, threaten our joy in God, so we must rejoice in the Lord always. Joy is our lifeline, my friends. Consider Paul's circumstances for a moment. He was writing Philippians from prison because Rome considered him a national threat and threw him in jail because of his devotion to Jesus. There were selfish, envious, rivalrous brothers in Christ preaching Christ to afflict him more so that he suffered more in prison. And some professing Christians were contaminating the gospel and misleading people. There was a conflict in the Philippian church. His dear friend Epaphroditus Uh, almost died, Roman culture and society, my goodness, we could go on and on about that, how it was steeped in idolatry and corruption, and Paul was a Roman citizen. And Paul faced the internal threat of his own sinful nature. So rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice did not arise from ease or comfort but from suffering and gross injustice and, this is so important, unshakable joy in God. 
Paul suffered, but throughout Philippians, he expressed his deep joy in God and what God was doing in the Philippians. Paul was a happy man in bad circumstances because Christ was his happiness. Christ was the center of his rejoicing. Reread Philippians. I wish we could go through it, and you'll see what Paul was happy about. It all centers back to Christ. So his imperative, his command to rejoice in the Lord always is not pie-in-the-sky idealism. It was how Paul stood firm and how he commended the Philippians to stand firm. Verse 4 is a lifeline, a rescue. Saints, you need verse 4. So here's the take-home. Rejoicing in the Lord always is how you stand firm in all circumstances. To hold fast, you got to rejoice in God. Whatever threatens to snuff out your joy, it is Christ alone who can fortify your rejoicing to protect you from every threat. Favorable circumstances, they're not going to sustain your joy. How are they going to sustain your joy? Because circumstances frequently change. The joy of the Lord will be your strength to stand firm in all circumstances. You don't need favorable circumstances to be happy in God. You need to be happy in God to prevail in your unfavorable circumstances. So very practically, as as we head into this, you must rejoice in the Lord to overcome despair. You must rejoice in the Lord to overcome depression, anxiety, sadness, hopelessness, to to persevere through rejection or poverty or disease or loneliness or whatever, fill in the blank. Last week, I, I gave you a really important point that I hope at least stuck a little bit. The indicative gives rise to the... All right, seven of you got it, great. The imperative, and we're going to need that today because that makes a difference in where we're going. We need to bring in all that we have studied about Jesus Christ, his divinity, humility, sacrifice, obedience, exaltation, supremacy, sovereignty, worth, righteousness, suffering, death, resurrection, salvation, reign. We need to bring all of who Jesus Christ is, which is objectively true, as the basis for our rejoicing. He is the anchor. He is the basis for standing firm, for rejoicing. And then we need to consider that Jesus Christ has made us partners in the gospel, that God has began a good work in us and will complete us, complete it, that we are partakers of his grace, that we have the spirit to help us and to deliver us, that God has given us both belief and suffering, that we have the mind of Christ, that God is working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure, that we are adopted children of God who shine as lights in the world, world, that we have the word of life to hold fast to, that we are the true circumcision, God's covenant people who worship by the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and seek to put no confidence in the flesh, that we have the righteousness of God through faith, that we are like Christ in his death and anticipate a glorious resurrection, that Christ has made us his own and reveals truth to us, and that we are citizens of heaven who will be transformed into the likeness of Christ's glorious resurrected body. These indicatives also give rise to the imperative to rejoice 
in the Lord. Christ has graciously positioned us to stand firm, and he will give us the power to stand firm. Last week, we studied verse 1, which says this, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Thus means stand firm in this way. This is how you're supposed to stand firm. So whatever follows verse 1 is an explanation of how we're supposed to stand firm. And last week I introduced three components of that standing firm. There are more components, but last week we said we stand firm through our affection for one another. How deeply we have affection for one another. Our agreeing in unity with each other. That that Christ unity that we experience. And when necessary, our reconciliation with one another. To seek forgiveness and to restore that relationship. That's how we stand for. And now we have a fourth, rejoicing. Rejoicing. What does it mean to rejoice? Cairo, not talking about Egypt here. Cairo is the Greek word for rejoice. To feel great happiness and joy. But also, it's a willful expression of that happiness or joy. To rejoice is to be so delighted with something that you have to express that delight somehow. You need to rejoice. So imagine a young mom who has just given birth to a beautiful child. Her joy in her child, it's off the charts. It's off the charts. And so all of a sudden, after going through this great violence of labor... Um, from the hospital bed, recovering mom takes her phone, jumps online, gets on Facebook, and all of a sudden just blitzes it with pictures of this precious little child. Because her joy that she has in that child is now overflowing in an expression, uh, a broadcasting of her joy in this child. That, that's kind of what rejoicing is. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. And he meant what he said. He said it back in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Feel deep gladness in the Lord and express that deep gladness. Rejoice, that's the idea. And before we unpack that, I want to ask this question. Does God command feelings? Does God command feelings? And, and I'll just be honest with you, that's a sticky topic, even inside of the church. Can we control how we feel? And if so, why would God command something we can't control? So if we can't control it, why, why, would, he, why would he do that? This is sticky. So I wanted to know what does the world have to say about this, so I jumped on Google. And I Googled, can we control our feelings? And the first thing that popped up was from psychcentral.com, and it said this, quote, if a physical situation alone could cause emotions, then all the hundred people would feel the same way. Others do not cause our feelings. We cause them ourselves. This turns out to be great news because... That means that we have control of our feelings, much like we have control over other choices we make in our life, end quote. Evolutionary epistemologist Dr. Jeremy Sherman weighed in on this, psychology.com, or psychologytoday.com, he said this, 
quote, no matter what's going on, you can choose whether to be angry or calm, resentful or forgiving. It's all up to you. Now, there is some truth to that. I agree with some of that. Uh, But there's also a deception in there, and I hope you're able to catch that. Here's what's true. This view of our emotions acknowledges our responsibility for what we feel. So we're responsible. We're culpable for what we feel. That coincides with Scripture, the responsibility of, of man. Additionally, most people would say that love is better than hatred. Forgiveness is better than resentment. Joy is better than despair. So inherent to human nature is a call to the highest level of emotions, the highest level. There is a a standard here that is built in to us. Now, why is that? I believe God built that into us. It's not a far reach to believe that God would command a supreme set of emotions, one that is best for humanity, namely God glorifying joy in God. So listen to these commands from God now, not the culture, that settle this issue. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart, Psalm 32, 11. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, Psalm 37, 4. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all the upright in heart exalt, Psalm 64, verse 10. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, Psalm 118, verse 24. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing, Psalm 100, verse 2. This one's great for us. I love this. I found this recently. I'd read it before sometime, but it didn't sink. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. Isaiah 65, verse 18. That could be our theme verse, folks. And even Jesus commanded his disciples to rejoice and be glad. God commands other emotions too. Do not covet. Be content with what you have. That's scripture. That's from God. God commands us to feel certain things, including joy in him, because those feelings coincide with his holiness and his glory. So yes, God does command us to rejoice in him. And if we don't feel joy in God We sin against him because we fail to feel toward his infinite glory the way he has designed us to feel. Are you hanging with me? Our emotions rebel. Friends, feeling and expressing great delight in God is a matter of obedience. Now, hearing that, I bet some of you are squirming. I bet you're squirming because you know how inconsistent and sometimes out of control your feelings are. Chaos. Could it be that you need Jesus to redeem your emotions and put rejoicing in you? Now stick with me here. Something happened many years ago in the Garden of Eden to our emotions. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, all of them All of them became corrupted by sin and subject to death. They lost their their original innocence and sin became their their slavish taskmaster, ruling their body, ruling their soul, ruling their will, ruling their mind, and ruling their emotions. 
Their feelings became corrupted by sin. They lost their capacity to feel what God commanded them to feel. You could say they were emotionally dead in sin. It was not simply their body that rebelled, but their emotions rebelled against God, and sin corrupted and killed their emotions. This is what we would call the total depravity of our emotions. Do you understand? Along with our body, along with our soul, will, and mind, the fall has corrupted our feelings. We don't need Jesus to save us simply from our evil deeds. We need him to come and to save us from our evil feelings as well. We are entirely guilty when our emotions do not glorify God. So here we have the world acknowledging human responsibility and culpability for feelings, but the world doesn't acknowledge God, and the world doesn't acknowledge original sin and guilt. Neither does the world acknowledge the gospel as the only treatment for destructive and immoral emotions. Remember, Psych Central said, we have control of our emotions. Remember, Dr. Sherman, it's all up to you. Are you really your own emotional savior? Everyone is responsible for how they feel. And I I want this to be understood. To a certain extent, everyone, including the world, has control over some of what they feel. Not everybody has to be this huge tyrant just tearing around in anger. They can control that to a certain extent. But outside of Christ, no human being has the power to feel what glorifies God. The natural sinful man can't choose God-exalting forgiveness or contentment or happiness in God because the natural man chooses not to love God. They just have no power over their emotions. They're subject completely to their sinful emotions. So cognitive therapy fails. Positive psychology fails. More training or education or self-actualization fail because the answer to destructive emotions is not found within human nature. Only God's sovereign grace can save someone and therefore transform and conform their emotions to the perfect emotions of Christ. All other tactics, they're just going to fail. God is preeminent and his holy character necessitates that all rejoicing be in him. God commands joy in him And if we don't rejoice in the Lord, we sin against him. That's why it is such great news that Jesus Christ, the Savior, perfectly rejoices in God and comes to rescue us from our sin and to transform our feelings so that our feelings glorify God. That's what redemption is about. Faith in Christ fuels rejoicing in Christ. Friends, look. So many times, I flat out don't feel like rejoicing. Does anyone identify with that? What if you don't feel like rejoicing in the Lord? Great, we know what we should do, but I'm not doing it, and I don't feel like it. I want to complain. I want to get mad. I want to yell. I don't want to rejoice. What do you do? And here's where you have to be listening to what I said earlier. And you have to bring in the point that the indicative gives rise to the imperative. 
Otherwise, you're dead in the water. This is going to be so frustrating for you if you miss what I was saying earlier. Jesus is the basis of our standing firm, meaning Jesus is the basis for our rejoicing in the Lord. Jesus is our supremely powerful and sovereign Savior and Lord who subjects all things to himself, so he is Lord over our feelings And by trusting in him alone, he alone can produce rejoicing in us. He can do it where we can't. We are dependent on him to do it. That's faith, my friends. That's what faith in Christ is. It means that you trust Christ to do it. It means you trust him to put rejoicing into your soul. As you fight by the Spirit to rejoice. Imagine that you have this huge rock in your front yard... You don't want it there. You think it's ugly. I got to get rid of it. And let's just assume that it's about 1,000 pounds. And so you walk out confidently to that rock and you wrap your arms around that thing and you start to heave and nothing is happening and you're sweating and you look like a fool. This is very odd. Your neighbor looks out and sees you. And he, he thinks you're just out of your mind, but he likes you. And so he brings his backhoe over and he says, why don't you climb up in there and use my backhoe to move that? Stop looking ridiculous. You know, we care about you. Neighbor, don't throw your back out. Get in the backhoe. And so you climb in the backhoe and you move the rock. The backhoe does for you what you cannot otherwise do for yourself. But you're also moving the rock. How are we supposed to rejoice when life is hard and we don't feel like rejoicing? Try to remember this. I hope this is helpful to you. You might want to write it down. The strength of your joy is determined by the strength of the object of your joy. The strength of your joy is determined by the strength of the object of your joy. Listen to the verse again. Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. Did you hear it? The the key to rejoicing in all circumstances is the prepositional phrase, in the Lord. And I take that to mean two things when it comes to your joy and your emotional health. So you got to listen close. This is so helpful to you. First... The Lord Jesus Christ is to be the object of your greatest rejoicing. He must be your greatest joy. Not that we don't take joy in in other things. Not that we don't take joy in our wives or our husbands or our kids or our job or our sports teams. Not that we don't take joy in those things. It's just that our ultimate rejoicing, our ultimate joy, our highest joy must be in the Lord. That's very important. Why would we want to rejoice in something that is going to change? The Steelers might lose tonight. That's horrible. That's horrible. But it probably won't happen. We'll see. I heard about this stomach flu thing, and it's not encouraging. Tom Brady's good. So let's say that your greatest rejoicing is in your health. What happens to your rejoicing when you get sick? Let's say that your greatest rejoicing is in your money. What happens to your rejoicing when hyperinflation hits and your investments are worthless? Let's say your greatest rejoicing is in that beautiful teenage girl or that beautiful teenage boy. What happens to your rejoicing when they dump you? And they probably will. 
I'm just being honest. The way to have steady and immovable and unchanging and firm rejoicing, even when your circumstances are terrible, is to rejoice in what can sustain your joy. Of course there is pain when our circumstances turn for the worse. Of course. It hurts. There is pain and suffering. But since Christ is the joy of your rejoicing, your rejoicing is secure because Christ is secure. Now, many scriptures confirm that our rejoicing must be in the Lord. I'll just highlight three. Plenty more we could go to. Psalm 16, verses 8 and 9. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. When Christ is at our right hand and always before us, we are glad and all of us rejoices. Psalm 31, 7 says this. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. God knows your affliction. God knows the distress of your soul. That is why you can rejoice in him knowing he will always love you. His love is not going anywhere. You have it in Christ. His love for you kindles your rejoicing when you're afflicted, which carries you through. Jesus had a great word for us in Luke 6, verses 22 and 23. Let let this totally transform the way you think about your own happiness. Let Jesus dig in to your misconceptions about being a happy person and let him rebuild it upon the truth. This is what Jesus said. Blessed, or you could say happy, are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Now, why would we rejoice when people hate and malign us? Maybe in front of another person and we feel like a total fool because of Christ, because we actually believe in him, that he's a real person, that he is awesome, that he's beautiful, and they're scoffing at us and hating us and, and not including us. In what we, that's not fun. None of that is fun. Why, do, why would we rejoice? Why would we leap for joy? Because very soon, you will have your reward in heaven. That's why. And I believe the greatest reward of heaven is the Lord himself. We gain God. Sometime check out Habakkuk 3, Acts 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Each of those passages gives a wonderful perspective on rejoicing in the Lord in the context of pain. The strength of your joy is determined by the strength of the object of your joy. So pursue your greatest joy in Christ because rejoicing in the Lord is the strength you need to endure life's toughest circumstances. 
The second thing I take in the Lord to mean is this. It means union with Christ by faith. Your faith unites you to Christ. Christ is in you. You are in Christ. John 15 is significant here. Jesus talked about his disciples abiding in him and he abiding in them. And he also said, for apart from me, you can do nothing, nothing like rejoicing in the Lord. So union with Christ is necessary to do anything that glorifies God. And then Jesus said this, these beautiful words, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The fullness of your joy is entirely dependent upon Christ being in you and you being in Christ. The source of perfect joy is Jesus Christ. So obviously you need Christ in you stimulating your rejoicing. Jesus is the happiest person in God. No one is happier in God than Jesus. He always was happy. He always will be happy. And in his perfect righteousness, inside of that perfect righteousness is perfect rejoicing in God at all times. Consider what Jesus Christ endured. The furious wrath of God, the furious and righteous judgment of God on the cross. He had deep anguish and yet he remained perfectly happy and joyful in God. This is not a pie in the sky idealism. Jesus modeled what joy is. So for any of you who are like, man, I just don't, something doesn't seem right here because what about those moments when I am in the garbage? I mean, I am down in the dumps. I can't be rejoicing. Look at the person of Christ. Did he not have pain and suffering? Was he having a great time? But he was perfectly and always joyful in God. It is in his life, death, and resurrection that the power comes to us to rejoice. All rejoicing outside of the Lord is incomplete. It is superficial, and ultimately, it is idolatrous rejoicing. The world rejoices, absolutely it rejoices, but not the way which glorifies God and promotes their greatest happiness and joy in God. It's idolatrous. Only when rejoicing is in the Lord or via union with Christ does it glorify God and promote our greatest joy and rejoicing. So here is how to stand firm. Rejoice in the Lord more than anything else. Trust Christ to work joy in you And draw strength from Christ to enjoy him most, to actually rejoice in him. So let me end here. Does God really expect us to rejoice all the time? Are you serious? Always? Let's just take that always out. Maybe on sunny days we'll rejoice. What did God say? Rejoice in the Lord always. Always, 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 always. The word is pantate, which means at all times, forever. One lexicon defined it like this, all the time and on every occasion. Paul used the same word in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, so we got other texts for this. Rejoice always. And Paul wanted to make sure that he absolutely got that point across to the Philippians, and so what did he say? Again, I will say rejoice. Did you get it? You gotta rejoice. 
There is never any occasion for you or me not to rejoice in the Lord. We will have pain, but even in pain, we must have underlying joy in God that fuels us to endure the pain. We were created to glorify and enjoy God. You were created to rejoice in God all the time. But your sinful nature prevents that now. You're going to fall short of the glory of God, amen? It's just what is. And the beauty of redemption is that Christ, by the Spirit, works in you to conform your emotions to Christ so that you can rejoice in God. That sanctification is still in process. Of course we don't feel like we should, and that's why we must cling to Christ so that he can work in us to produce those feelings for God that we want but so often don't have. Because we have Christ in us, we have an infinite storehouse of joy, always accessible to us in him. We are not deprived of what is rightfully ours in Christ, including exuberant joy. God knows our joy deficiency. He still loves and accepts our imperfect and inconsistent rejoicing because of Christ. But God is very much working in us to conform our emotions to the perfect emotions of Christ. And at the resurrection, our lowly bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his heavenly body, his glorious body. And we will reach the day where we will rejoice in him perfectly forever. We will never be distracted again by these dumb little things of the world that don't mean anything. Our rejoicing will be perfect. So when you're sick, rejoice in the Lord. When you lose your job, rejoice in the Lord. When your marriage is terrible, rejoice in the Lord. When your children rebel against God, rejoice in the Lord. When a loved one dies, rejoice in the Lord. When you fail a test in school, rejoice in the Lord. When your favorite toy is lost or broken or some other kid takes it, rejoice in the Lord. God's holiness not only necessitates it, but he strengthens you through faith to do it for his glory and your greatest satisfaction. Please think about this. Glum and morose and pessimistic Christians do not glorify God as they should. We should be the happiest people on planet earth because we know the king. Their demeanor makes a statement about God that is not true. It is a lie. He is glorious. We have him. Unceasing joy and rejoicing in God is a unique and beautiful mark of the people of God. For it shows the Lord to be supremely valuable and supremely enjoyable. You can't stand firm until you rejoice in the Lord always. So you must strive for the always. You must not stop. I'd like to leave you with this thought from pastor and New York Times bestselling author Tim Keller. I actually disagree with him on one short part in here. Uh, the, the part that says no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion because I believe that's what God is doing. So I don't agree with that part, but I want to share this with you anyways because it's really good, really good. This guy has a way with words, so just listen carefully. Rejoicing in the Bible 
is much deeper than simply being happy about something. Paul directed that we should rejoice in the Lord always, but this cannot mean always feel happy since no one can command someone to always have a particular emotion. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to assess its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it and tastes the sweetness of it. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. That's really good. Really good. Rejoicing is a way of praising God until the heart is sweetened and rested and until it relaxes its grip on anything else it thinks it needs. That's how we fight for joy. That's how we fight to stand firm. We praise God until God gives us joy. Rejoicing in the Lord is how you fight for joy. He is all that we need in every situation. So we must throw ourselves on his mercy, throw ourselves on his grace to rejoice in his sufficiency for us when everything else is lost. And he will graciously and tenderly strengthen our joy in him. It may be frail sometimes, but he will not, uh, he will not let it break. Rejoice in the Lord always. And you, my brother and sister, will stand firm. Father in heaven, thank you for the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I know there are people who heard this sermon today on one simple little verse that is so easy to understand that are getting rocked right now. Life is so out of control I pray that your spirit would drive these words so deep in their heart that they would be either converted to come to Christ and see his great value and power or that they would be strengthened in him to not look at the world and all of its woes and pleasures but to find in Christ their greatest joy which fuels their rejoicing in him. God, make us a happy people, not because our lives go perfectly, but because we know Jesus. Amen.